are listening to the most original talk radio station anywhere. We are L.A. Talk Radio at latalkradio.com. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. Sapphire Planet. Churchill had a good relationship with U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Between 1939 and 1945, they exchanged an estimated 1,700 letters and telegrams and met 11 times. Churchill estimated that they had 120 days of close personal contact. This helped secure vital food, oil, and munitions via the North Atlantic shipping routes. It was for this reason that Churchill was relieved when Roosevelt was re-elected in 1940. Upon re-election, Roosevelt immediately set out about implementing a new method of providing military hardware and shipping to Britain without the need for monetary payment. Put simply, Roosevelt persuaded Congress that repayment for this immensely costly service would take the form of depending the U.S., and so Lend-Lease was born. Churchill had 12 strategic conferences with Roosevelt, which covered the Atlantic Charter, the Europe First Strategy, the Declaration by the United Nations, and other war policies. After Pearl Harbor was attacked, Churchill's first thought in anticipation of U.S. help was, we have won the war. On December 26, 1941, Churchill addressed the joint meeting of the U.S. Congress, asking of Germany and Japan, What kind of people do they think we are? Churchill initiated the Special Operations Executive under Hugh Dalton's Ministry of Economic Warfare, which established, conducted, and fostered covert, subversive, and partisan operations in occupied territories with notable success, and also the commandos, which established the pattern for the most of the world's current 
special forces. The Russians referred to Churchill as the British Bulldog. Churchill's health was fragile. As shown by a mild heart attack he suffered in December 1941 while he was at the White House, and also in December 1943 when he contracted pneumonia. Despite this, he traveled over 100,000 miles throughout the war to meet other national leaders. For security, he usually traveled using the alias Colonel Warden. Churchill was party to treaties that would redraw post-Second World War European and Asian boundaries. These were discussed as early as 1943. At the Second Quebec Conference in 1944, he drafted and, together with Roosevelt, signed a less harsh version of the original Morgenthau Plan, in which they pledged to convert Germany after its unconditional surrender into a country primarily agricultural and pastoral in character. Proposals for European boundaries and settlements were officially agreed to by Harry S. Truman, Churchill, and Joseph Stalin at Potsdam. Churchill's strong leadership with Harry Truman was also of great significance to both countries. While he clearly regretted the loss of his close friend and counterpart, Roosevelt, Churchill was enormously supportive of Truman in his first days in office, calling him the type of leader the world needs when it needs him the most. How was Roosevelt's Churchill's relationships with the Soviet Union? When Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, Winston Churchill, a vehement anti-communist, famously stated, If Hitler invaded hell, I would at least make a favorable reference to the devil in the House of Commons regarding his policy towards Stalin. Soon, British supplies and tanks were flowing to help the Soviet Union. The Casablanca Conference, a meeting of Allied powers held in Casablanca, Morocco, on January 14th through January 23rd, 1943, produced what was to be known as the Casablanca Declaration. In attendance were Churchill, Franklin Roosevelt, and Charles de Gaulle. Joseph Stalin had bawled out, citing the need for his presence in the Soviet Union to attend to the Stalingrad crisis. It was in Casablanca that the Allies made a unified commitment to continue the war through to the unconditional surrender of the Axis powers. In private, however, Churchill did not fully subscribe to the doctrine of unconditional surrender and was taken by surprise when Franklin Roosevelt announced this to the world as an Allied consensus. The settlement concerning the borders of Poland, that is the boundary between Poland and the Soviet Union, and between Germany and Poland, was viewed as a betrayal in Poland during the post-war years, 
as it was established against the views of the Polish government in exile. It was Winston Churchill who tried to motivate Mikiliadzic, who was the prime minister of the Polish government in exile, to accept Stalin's wishes. But Mikiliadzic refused. Churchill was convinced that the only way to alleviate tensions between the two populations was the transfer of people to match the national borders. As he expounded in the House of Commons on December 15, 1944, expulsion is the method which, insofar as we've been able to see, will be the most satisfactory and lasting. There will be no mixture of population to cause endless trouble. A clean sweep will be made. I am not alarmed by these transferences, which are more plausible in modern conditions. However, the resulting expulsion of Germans were carried out in a way which resulted in much hardship, and according to a 1966 report by the West German Ministry of Refugee and Displaced Persons, the death of over 2.1 million Germans. Churchill opposed the effective annexation of Poland by the Soviet Union and wrote bitterly about it in his books, but he was unable to prevent it at the conferences. During October 1944, he and Eden were in Moscow to meet with the Russian leadership. At this point, Russian forces were beginning to advance into various Eastern European countries. Churchill held the view that until everything was formally and properly worked out at the Yalta Conference, there had to be a temporary wartime working agreement with regard to who would run what. The most significant of these meetings was held on October 9, 1944, in the Kremlin between Churchill and Stalin. During the meeting, Poland and the Balkan problems were discussed. Churchill told Stalin, Let us settle about our affairs in the Balkans. Your armies are in Romania and Bulgaria. We have interests, missions, and agents there. Don't let us get at cross purposes in small ways, so far as Britain and Russia are concerned. How would it do for you to have 90% predominance in Romania and for us to have 90% of the say in Greece and go 50-50 about Yugoslavia. Stalin agreed to this percentages agreement, ticking a piece of paper as he heard the translation. In 1958, five years after the account of this meeting was published in Churchill's book, The Second World War, Authorities of the Soviet Union denied that Stalin accepted the imperialist proposal. One of the conclusions of the Yalta Conference was that the Allies would return all Soviet citizens that they found themselves in the Allied zones to the Soviet Union. This immediately affected the Soviet prisoners of war liberated by the Allies. But was also extended to all Eastern European refugees. Some called this Operation Keyhole 
the last secret of the Second World War. The operation decided the fate of up to two million post-war refugees fleeing from Eastern Europe. Now they were rounded up and brought back to the Soviet Union. There was also controversy during Churchill's tenure, that being the Dresden bombings controversy. Between February 13th and 15th, 1945, British and U.S. bombers attacked the German city of Dresden, which was crowned with German wounded and refugees. There was an unknown number of refugees in Dresden, so some historians have used historical sources and deductive reasoning to estimate the numbers of refugees in the city and the surrounding suburbs and they put that number around 200,000 or less in the first night of the bombing. Because of the cultural importance of the city and the number of civilian casualties close to the end of the war, this remains one of the most controversial Western Allied actions of the war. Following the bombing, Churchill stated in a top-secret telegram, It seems to me that the moment has come when the question of bombing of German cities simply for the sake of increasing the terror, though under pretexts, other pretexts, should be reviewed. I feel the need for a more precise concentration upon military objectives such as oil and communications behind the immediate battle zone rather than on mere acts of terror and the wanton destruction however impressive. On reflection, under pressure from the Chiefs of Staff and in response to the views expressed by Sir Charles Portal, who was the Chief of Air Staff, and Sir Arthur Harris of RAF Bomber Command, among others, Churchill withdrew his memo and issued a new one. The final version of this memo completed on April 1st, 1945, stated, It seems to me that the moment has come when the question of the so-called area bombing of German cities should be reviewed from the point of view of our own interests. If we come into control of an entirely ruined land, there will be great shortage of accommodations for ourselves and our allies. We must see to it that our attacks do no more harm to ourselves in the long run than they do to the enemy's war effort. Ultimately, responsibility for the British part of the attack lay with Churchill, which is why he's been criticized for allowing the bombings to occur. Researchers have questioned the whole strategic bombing campaign by the RAF, presenting the argument that although it was not a war crime, it was a moral crime, that undermines the Allies' contention that they fought a just war. On the other hand, it has also been asserted that Churchill's involvement in the bombing of Dresden was based on strategic and tactical aspects of winning the war. The destruction of Dresden, while immense, was designed to expedite the defeat of Germany. As historians have wrote, 
in previous articles, it is wrong to describe strategic bombing as a war crime, for this might be held to suggest that some moral equivalence with the deeds of the Nazis. Bombing represented a sincere, albeit mistaken, attempt to bring about Germany's military defeat. All sides bombed each other's cities during the war. Half a million Soviet citizens, for example, died from German bombing during the invasion and occupation of Russia. That's roughly equivalent to the number of German citizens who died from Allied raids. Finally, the Second World War ends. In June 1944, Allied forces invaded Normandy and pushed Nazi forces back into Germany on a broad front over the coming year. After being attacked on three fronts by Allies, in the spite of the Allied failures such as Operation Market Garden and German counterattacks including the Battle of the Bulge, Germany was eventually defeated. On May 7, 1945, at the Sheaf headquarters in Reims, the Allies accepted Germany's surrender. On the same day, in a BBC news flash, John Snag announced that May 8th would be Victory in Europe Day. On Victory in Europe Day, Churchill broadcast to the nation that Germany had surrendered and that the final ceasefire on all fronts in Europe would come into effect at one minute past midnight that night. Afterwards, Churchill told a huge crowd in Whitehall, This is your, pe- your victory. The people shouted back, No, it is yours. And Churchill then conducted them in singing of Land of Hope and Glory. In the evening, he made another broadcast to the nation, asserting the defeat of Japan in the coming months. The Japanese later surrendered on August 15, 1945. As Europe celebrated peace at the ends of six years of war, Churchill was concerned with the possibility that the celebrations would soon be brutally interrupted. He concluded that the UK and the US must anticipate the Red Army ignoring previously agreed frontiers and agreements in Europe and prepared to impose upon Russia the will of the United States and the British Empire. According to the Operation Unthinkable plan ordered by Churchill and developed by British Armed Forces, the Third World War could have started on July 1st, 1945 with a sudden attack against the Allied Soviet troops. The plan was rejected by the British Chiefs of Staff's Committee as militarily unfeasible. Although Churchill's role in World War II had generated him much support, from the British population. He had many opponents. He also expressed contempt for the number of popular ideas, in particular, creating a system of national public health care 
and improving public policy and education. Partly as a result of this, Churchill was defeated in the 1945 election by Clement Altily and the Labour Party. There are different possibilities to why he lost this election. It could be that the voters thought that the man who had led them so well in the war was not the man to lead them in peace, or that the election result was not a reaction against Churchill personally, but against the Conservative Party's record in their 1930s under Baldwin and Chamberlain. Also, the proposed policies of the Labour Party, with its reforms such as introducing the National Health Service, may have been thought a better party. During the opening broadcast of the election campaign, Churchill astonished many of his admirers by warning that a Labour government would introduce Britain to some form of Gestapo, no doubt humanely administered in the first instance. Churchill had been generally worried during the war by the inroads of state bureaucracy into civil liberties. It was clearly influenced by Frederick Hayek's anti-totalitarian tract, The Road to Serfdom, published in 1944. Churchill's resignation honors included recommendations outside party politics for the Chief of Staff of the Armed Services and the Ministry of Defense, which had the approval of the new Prime Minister. Winston Churchill was an early supporter of the Pan-Europeanism. In his speech at the University of Zurich in 1946, Winston Churchill called for a United States of Europe and the creation of a Council of Europe. He also participated in the Hague Congress of 1948, which discussed the future structure and role of this Council of Europe. The Council of Europe was finally found as the first European institution through the Treaty of London, May 5, 1949, and had its seat in Strasbourg, Germany. However, this is often seen as his supporting Britain's membership in a united Europe, which is far from the truth. Rather, he saw pan-Europeanism as Franco-German project, which would foster cooperation amongst European countries and the rest of the world and prevent war on the European continent. This can be seen in Churchill's landmark refusal to join the European coal and steel community in 1951, as well as his often quoted speech in which he said of Britain's role with Europe, we have our own dream and our own task. We are with Europe, but not of it. We are linked, but not combined. We are interested and associated, but not absorbed. This stance has arguably shaped Britain's feeling towards European integration and its subsequent general ambivalence 
towards all things Europe. He saw Britain's place as separate from the continent, much more in line with the countries of the Commonwealth and the Empire and with the United States, the so-called Anglosphere. As evidenced in his speech at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, given March 5, 1946, where as a guest of Harry S. Truman he declared, Neither the sure prevention of war nor the continuous rise of world organizations will be gained without what I have called the fraternal association of the English-speaking peoples. This means a special relationship between the British Commonwealth and the Empire of the United States. It was also during this speech that he popularized the term the Iron Curtain. From the Stettin to the Baltic to his treaties in the Adirondack, an Iron Curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of the Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. Churchill was instrumental in giving France a permanent seat in the United Nations Security Council, which provided another European power to counterbalance the Soviet Union's permanent seat on the council. Although Churchill was no longer prime minister, he would not leave the public eye for many years. His image as a world leader and a seasoned diplomat would allow him to remain a figurehead in British politics. Churchill became the leader of the opposition, the Conservative Party. While acting as leader, Churchill accomplished a great many things and would make his voice heard on issues which he felt strongly against. The first major issue which Churchill made himself known was the issue whether or not to release India from British control. In a speech to the House of Commons in early March 1947, Churchill warned against handing power over to India too soon. Churchill felt that the political parties in India did not truly represent the people and that in a few years no trace of the new government would remain. Churchill would write a six-volume set on his experiences in World War II. The series entitled The Second World War would lend Churchill's personal thoughts, beliefs, and experiences to the historical record of World War II. Churchill traded the literary rights to his books in return for double the salary he made as Prime Minister. Major points in Churchill's books included his disgust in the handling of the Hitler incident prior to the onset of World War II, primarily with the policy of appeasement which the Allied powers implemented in dealing with the German tyrant. After the general election of 1951, 
Churchill again became Prime Minister. His third government. After the wartime national government and a brief caretaker government of 1945 would last until his resignation in 1955. During this period, he renewed what he called the special relationship between Britain and the United States and engaged himself in the formation of the post-war order. He tried in vain to maneuver the cabinet into restructuring West Indian immigration. I think it is the most important subject facing this country, he said, but I cannot get any of my ministers to take any notice. In what would become one of Churchill's most famous speeches, the Fulton speech would coin a phrase which would use for the remainder of the Cold War. The Iron Curtain is what Churchill referred to as the Soviet Union's growing influence in Eastern Europe. At the time that Churchill made the speech, both the United States and his own government had to publicly disagree with him in order not to appear that they shared his feelings. His speech would later be hailed as having a great prophetic value. Later it would be shown that President Truman and the Prime Minister both shared Churchill's feelings but were not at the point of public disclosure at that time. Churchill would coin another famous term, this time relating to the relationship the United States and Britain held. This special relationship referred to the closeness of the Anglo-American relationship in war, peace, and politics. This relationship had gone through different degrees during the course of two countries, but had been visibly stronger in the 20th century, especially during World War II. Churchill had played a major role in the special relationship, becoming what appeared to be close friends with Roosevelt during the war years. Churchill would later try to regain his lost relationship with President Truman. His domestic policies were, however overshadowed by a series of foreign policy crises, which were partly the result of the continued decline of the British military and imperial prestige and power. Being a strong proponent of Britain as an international power, Churchill would often meet such moments with direct action. In 1941, during World War II, he had stated... I did not become Prime Minister to preside over a dismemberment of the British Empire. Churchill devoted much of his time in office to international relations, and although Churchill did not get on well with President Dwight D. Eisenhower, Churchill attempted to maintain the special relationship with the United States, and he made four official transatlantic visits to America during his second term as Prime Minister. When President Eisenhower was elected in 1952, Churchill made haste in arranging a meeting with the new leader in hopes of establishing a stronger relationship with the United States. This would prove to be nearly impossible, though, due to Churchill's age. Churchill was beginning to show signs of aging and allegedly refused to wear his hearing aid while in meetings, causing the conversations to be carried on at a screaming volume. 
Eisenhower remarked in his diary how Churchill seems set in his ways and that Churchill seems to think that the world's problems could be solved merely by the close cooperation of Britain and the United States. Churchill would also try to establish better relations with the Soviet Union when, in 1953, Joseph Stalin died. Churchill saw the death of Stalin to mean that the Soviet Union would be under far better leadership than it had been under, and therefore seized the opportunity to establish better British-Soviet relations. Unfortunately for Churchill and the United States as well, as his own party saw this unilateral action as hasty. In 1951, in Africa, grievances against the colonial distribution of land came to a head when the Kenya-African Union demanding greater representation and land reform. When these demands were rejected from London, more radical elements came forward, launching the Mau Mau Rebellion in 1952. On October 20, 1952, a state of emergency was declared and British troops were flown to Kenya to deal with the rebellion. As both sides increased the ferocity of their attacks, the country moved to a full-scale civil war. In 1953, the Larai Massacre, perpetrated by Mau Mau insurgents against Kikuyu loyal to the British, changed the political complexion of the rebellion and gave the public relations advantage to the British. Churchill's strategy was to use a military response combined with implementing many of the concessions that the Adelaide government had blocked in 1951. He ordered an increased military presence and appointed General Sir George Eskrin, who would implement Operation Anvil in 1954 that defeated the rebellion in the city of Nairobi. Churchill ordered peace talks to be opened, but these collapsed shortly after his leaving office. In Malaya, a rebellion against British rule had been in progress since 1948. Once again, Churchill's government inherited a crisis, and once again Churchill chose to use direct military action against those in the rebellion while attempting to build an alliance with those who were not. He stepped up the implementation of a Hearts and Minds campaign and approved the creation of a Fortified Villages, a tactic that would become a recurring part of Western military strategy in Southeast Asia. The Malayan emergency was a more direct cause of guerrilla movement, centered in the ethnic group, but backed by the Soviet Union. As such, Britain's policy of direct confrontation and military victory had a great deal more support than in Iran or in Kenya. At the high point of the conflict, over 40,000 British and Commonwealth troops were stationed in Malaya. While the rebellion was slowly being defeated, it was equally clear that colonial rule from Britain was no longer plausible. 
1953, plans were drawn up for the independence of Malaya, Singapore, and other crown colonies in the region. The first elections were held in 1955, just days before Churchill's own resignation, and in 1957, under Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, Malaya became independent. In June 1953, when he was 79, Churchill suffered a stroke after meeting with the Italian Prime Minister Alcide de Gasperi at 10 Downing Street. News of this was kept from the public and from the Parliament, who were told that Churchill was suffering from exhaustion. He went to his country home, Chartwell, to recuperate from the effects of the stroke which had affected his speech and his ability to walk. He returned to public life in October to make a speech at a Conservative Party conference at Margate, having decided that if he couldn't make the speech, he would retire right then and there as the Prime Minister. But he was able to deliver it without problems. Churchill's fondness for alcohol was well documented. While in India and South Africa when he was young, he got in the habit of adding small amounts of whiskey to the water he drank in order to prevent disease. He was quoted on the subject as saying that, by dint of careful application, I learned to like it. He consumed alcoholic drinks on a nearly near daily basis for long periods in his life and frequently imbibed before, after, and during mealtimes, although he's not generally considered by historians to have been an alcoholic. The Churchill Center states that Churchill made a bet with a man with the last name Rothmere, possibly one of the Visquince Rothmere, in 1936, that Churchill would be able to successfully abstain from drinking hard liquor for a year. Churchill apparently won the bet. Aware that he was slowly slowing down both physically and mentally, Churchill retired as Prime Minister in 1955 and was succeeded by Anthony Eden, who had long been his ambitious protege. Three years earlier, Eden had married Churchill's niece, Anne Clarissa Spencer Churchill, and this was his second marriage. Shortly preceding his resignation, Churchill experienced an extended bout of somnambulism, which is also known as sleepwalking. This was a condition to which he was prone. After his resignation, the Queen offered him a dukedom, but Churchill declined the offer. Over the coming years, Churchill spent less time in Parliament, occasionally voting in parliamentary divisions, but never again speaking in the House. He continued to serve as MP for Woodford until he stood down for the last time at the 1964 general election. His private verdict on the Suez fiasco was, I never would have done it without squaring the Americans 
And once I started, I never have dared to stop. In 1959, he became father of the house, the MP with the longest continuous service. He had already gained the distinction of being the only MP to be elected under both Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth II. On July 27, 1964, Churchill was president of the House of Commons for the last time, and one day later on July 28th, a deputation headed by the Prime Minister, Sir Alec Douglas Home, presented Churchill with a resolution which had been carried by the House of Commons. The ceremony was held in Churchill's London home at 28 Hyde Park Gate and was witnessed by Clementine and his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It read that this house desired to take the opportunity of marking the forthcoming retirement of the right honorable gentleman, the member for Woodford, by putting on record its unbounded admiration for gratitude for his services to Parliament, to the nation, and to the world, remembers above all his inspiration of the British people when they stood alone, and his leadership until victory was won, and offers its graceful thanks for the right honorable gentleman for these outstanding services to this house and to the nation. Churchill spent most of his retirement at Chartwell House in Kent, two miles south of Westerham. As Churchill's mental and physical faculties decayed, he began to lose the battle he had fought so long against, the black dog of depression. He found some solace in the sunshine and colors of the Mediterranean. He took long holidays with his literary advisor, Emery Reeves, and Emery's wife, Wendy Russell, a la Paza, their villa on the French Riviera. Some seldom joined by his wife, Clementine. He also took eight cruises aboard the yacht Christina as the guest of Aristotle Onassis, Once, when the Christina had to pass through the Dardanelles, Onassis gave the instruction that it was to do so during the night so as not to disturb his guest with unhappy memories. In 1963, U.S. President John F. Kennedy, acting under authorization granted by an act of Congress, proclaimed Churchill the first honorary citizen of the United States. Churchill was physically incapable of attending the White House ceremony, so his son and grandson accepted the award for him. As his family life grew more despondent, he was unable to resolve the love-hate relationship between himself and his son. Churchill was also to suffer, suffer a further two strokes during the 1960s. On January 15, 1965, Churchill suffered another stroke, this time a severe cerebral thrombosis that left him gravely ill. He died at his home nine days later at age 90, shortly after 8 o'clock on the morning of Sunday, January 24, 1965. Coincidentally, 70 years to the day after his father's death. By the decree of the Queen, his body lay in state for three days 
and a state funeral service was held at St. Paul's Cathedral. This was the first state funeral for a non-royal family member since 1914, and no other of its kind have been held since. As his coffin passed the Thames on the Haven Gore, dockers lowered their crane jibs in a salute. The Royal Artillery fired a 19-gun salute as head of government, and the RAF staged a flyby of 16 English electric lightning fighters. The state funeral was the largest gathering of dignitaries in Britain, as representatives from well over 100 countries intended, including French President Charles de Gaulle, Canadian Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson, Prime Minister of Rhodesia Ian Smith, former U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower, and many other heads of state, including past and present heads of state and government and members of the royal family the world over. The train was hauled by the Battle of Britain-class locomotive 350451, the Winston Churchill. Fittingly, this was the last great state occasion to be movingly commented upon by the great British broadcaster Richard Dimbley, who died of lung cancer in December of 1965. The funeral also saw the largest assemblage of statesmen in the world since the funeral of President John F. Kennedy in 1963. At Churchill's request, he was buried in the family plot at St. Martin's Church, Blandon, near Woodstock, not far from his birthplace in Blenheim. In the fields along the route and at the stations through which the train passed, thousands stood in silence to pay their last respects. In 1998, his tombstone had to be replaced due to the large number of visitors over the years having eroded it and its surrounding area. A new stone was dedicated in 1998 in a ceremony attended by members members of the Spencer Churchill family. Because the funeral took place on January 30th, people in the United States marked it by paying tribute to his friendship with Franklin Delano Roosevelt because it was the anniversary of FDR's birth. Those who attended the service at Roosevelt's grave at his home in Hyde Park, New York, heard speakers at the service talk about the coincidence of the date in the records of the two leaders who shared history. On February 9, 1965, Churchill's estate was probated at 304,000 sterling, which is equivalent to about $5 million sterling adjusted for inflation in today's dollars. Winston Churchill was an accomplished artist and took great pleasure in painting, especially after his resignation as First Lord of the Alberti in 1950. He found a haven in art to overcome the spells of depression 
which he suffered throughout his adult life. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet? Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.